Please join me as we look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the body, and thank you for the love that flows. Thank you for your presence here with us now, the ultimate one who loves. And we pray that you would help us now as we interact with your word to not be the same people afterwards. Uh, Help us to be open to the change that you would like to do, but you won't force on us. So we thank you for this now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One verse today we're going to be looking at together in Titus. It's Titus 3.9, but it's packed with a lot of challenge for us. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, verse 9. It's about avoiding what is unprofitable and worthless. That sounds like a good thing to do, doesn't it, to avoid that? Here's what it says in Titus 3.9. But avoid... Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. At the end of February, as we look together at the first two verses of Titus chapter 3, we saw that we have duties as Christians to the outside world. There are certain ways God wants us to relate to the people who are not part of the church body, but at the same time not neglecting those that the Lord has brought us together with in unity in the church. There were seven reminders of our duties to the outside world, and if you want to look at them again in the first two verses of Titus chapter 3, we'll be reminded that we were called to be submissive to rulers and authorities and in the context to be obedient to them as well. In other words, we were called to be good citizens. Shouldn't a child of God, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, be a good citizen? No matter what country we're in, we should be good citizens. We should be respectful of those in authority over us. We should be praying for those in authority over us, and we should be obedient to those in authority over us. We should be obedient to the laws. We should be uh, model citizens. Uh, Then it goes on to say we should be ready for every good work, to be ready for every good work to at any time let those good works be a priority with us. We're not interested in random acts of kindness. That sounds like a great thing, and for some it is a great thing because that's all they do. But it shouldn't be random. It should be the way of life for a child of God to be able to show kindness to people, to show these good works that are there so that the Father can be glorified. To speak evil, it says, of no one. To speak evil of no one. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder if I did, how many of you would be able to say, that's me. I don't speak evil of anyone. You know, I've heard it said of a lot of people that they never said a bad word about anybody in their whole life. You know where I hear that? I hear that at funerals. I hear that at funerals. Everybody's a hero at a funeral. (laughs) But is that true of us who are living? Is it really true? Uh, Never speak evil of anyone. To avoid quarreling was one of those reminders we were given. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What I, what I see when I look at those seven points is that as Christians, we should be a breath of fresh air to everyone we encounter. Isn't that true? When somebody meets a Christian, it should be different than meeting somebody else. It should be a breath of fresh air. We certainly should not be rude or obnoxious or demanding. In other words, not overtly mean-spirited. Everybody understands that. Nor should we be standoffish. 
or aloof or self-centered. In other words, not passively mean-spirited, not indifferent to other people. That shouldn't be us as Christians. We should be the best thing that happens to people on a given day. Last week, I went into Little Caesars. Please don't let that get back to Mike Coco. Um, I, I don't. I don't want him to know that. To tell if you see him, tell him it was a weak moment. But I, I was at Little Caesars and I ordered two pizzas. And in the course of what I was doing, sometimes it can be complicated to order two pizzas when you have company and you're ordering different things. And the the gentleman who was there was very helpful. And I told him complimented him really on his attitude. I said, I really appreciate your attitude. You're a credit to your store. I said, you know what? In fact, you're acting like a Christian. I went, are you a Christian? You know what he said to me? He said, no, I'm a Muslim. And I didn't know what to say at that point because I was very, very surprised. But I, I had a lot of good things to say to him after I walked away, what I should have said. But I tried to be as nice to him and as polite as he was. But the part that, that bothered me was that he acted more like a Christian than many Christians. That should never, ever be. That he was acting more like we should be acting, and we should be doing it all the time. Last week I was in the hospital. I met a man on the elevator. It was about 12.30 in the afternoon, so about half the day was gone. And um, I did something that surprised him a little bit. I spoke to him. I spoke to somebody on an elevator. Can you believe that? I didn't stand there and look at the wall on the other side or look at the floors going by. And I I just said something very simple to him. I said, "Uh, are you having a good day? And he said, well, yes, I am. I'm having a good day. And then he said to me, are you having a good day? And I didn't want to lie to him. So I said to him, I will. (laughs) It hadn't, to that point, it hadn't been a real good day. But um, one of the things that as Christians, everywhere we go, people around should be better off than they were before we got there, even if it's a little tiny thing. This morning on the way to church, I, I was walking down the street, and I passed a man who was walking in the other direction, and I just said to him, good morning, I hope you have a blessed day. And when he got over the shock of that, he said, good morning, you too. A, a little thing. But our encounters with other people should be such that they've had a glimpse of Jesus. And I don't mean to be talking about myself. I do that only because uh, if ever I do something good, I like to tell somebody about it. And actually, I know me a lot better than I know you and what happened to me today and what happened to me during the week. But I can remember when I was in the hospital getting my knees replaced that one of the nurses said to me, uh, she said, you know what, you're my favorite patient. And I thought to myself, am I, did I get in the wrong word? Is this for the criminally insane? Or why would I be her favorite person? And she said, it's because everybody else treats me like a servant. They order me around. They tell me what to do. They're not polite. And, and I understood what she was talking about because all I was doing was what any one of you would have done, what any Christian would have done, any follower of Christ. And that is to realize that we are the servant. The nurse The doctor, they're not the servant. We're the servants because everywhere we go, we want to be like Jesus. And that's why he came. He came to serve. That's what he tells us. And that's that's what our responsibility is too. Now, our text this morning is about something that is really on the other side of the coin than these seven reminders of our duties that appeared at the beginning of chapter 3. 
those seven reminders were telling us how we should act, including some of the things we shouldn't do in order to complement all the rest of the things in the way we should be. But this morning, this is about providing or avoiding things that are unprofitable and worthless, and we're doing this for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are some things that we're absolutely to avoid. What we're looking at, it looks like four things that are there, and some of us will look at that real quickly and we'll say, well, I think I'm going to be safe today. I don't think I'm involved in these things. But it has to do with those who try to argue about inconsequentials, those who wrangle and quarrel about matters that are of secondary importance or even less. It brings into view those that allow their ego to try to win an argument instead of letting their Christian character win a convert. Do you know what? As I was thinking through that, trying to win an argument instead of trying to win a convert, it took me back to my high school days a few years ago. And as I was, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, I used to do a talk for the high school kids when I was the um, youth pastor. And I remember one of the messages was titled, My Three Biggest Mistakes in High School. I can't remember two of them, but I can remember one of them. And I'll have to look up the other two because I'm probably inadvertently doing them again. But the one big mistake that I was making was that I was not sharing the Lord Jesus Christ. I was sharing those parts of Christianity that other people may not have been doing. And who would have expected them to do them? Uh, It all boiled down to this, and I've, I've mentioned this before from the pulpit here. As I read my yearbook, one of my classmates, who was a friend of mine, wrote something down, and he he probably thought maybe it was even halfway complimentary. And to me, it was a definite rebuke. He wrote under his picture as he signed it, to the one-man reformatory. That was me. To the one-man reformatory. And I realized, you know what? My classmates, there are a lot of them who are headed for hell, and I was more interested in arguing with them about their drinking parties over the weekend and what, what the, how they spent their time doing things that I didn't approve of. Um, their language, I'd talk to them about the language that they shouldn't be using and why they shouldn't and argue with them about uh, various kinds of things. And, and what I was in violation of, I was in violation, if you'll do me a favor and turn to hymn number 300 in, in your hymn books, number 300, we're not going to sing it. But number 300, this is what I was not doing. More interested in winning an argument rather than seeing someone come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Number 300, this is what I should have been doing. And this is the mistake that I made, the biggest mistake I could think of in high school. I was not doing this. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed his name to bear. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian. I'll take him with me anywhere. I'll tell the world how Jesus saved me and how he gave me a life brand new. And I know that if you trust him, that all he gave me, he'll give to you. I'll tell the world that he's my savior. No other one could love me so. My life, my all is his forever and where he leads me. I will go. In the grand scheme of things, it didn't matter whether somebody would go to hell sober or not. All that I was arguing with them about drinking and all that didn't matter. What really mattered was tell the world what Jesus has done for me. 
So the verse before us tells us to avoid several specific areas because these areas are unprofitable and worthless. When we're arguing with people, when we're wrangling about things, it's unprofitable. That's not where God would have us. So unprofitable. It's from a Greek word that you can see the ah that generally means a negative in front of one of these words. Not and ophileo is to profit. It's not profitable. It serves no purpose and therefore it's injurious. So we're going to be looking at four things that we're to avoid and we're to avoid them because first of all, they're unprofitable, it tells us. And secondly, they are worthless. Worthless is again from a, a word that means empty. It's totally fruitless. It's aimless. It's useless. And one writer has put it this way. It's like building houses on sand. Now, on the screen, there's a picture of a house that was built on sand, and it didn't make out so well when the storm came. Uh, That's the nature of houses built on the sand. Uh, Also, it's like chasing the wind. And if you can't see the screen, there's a picture of a net, maybe a butterfly net, where somebody, if he's chasing a butterfly, he might have some success. But if he's chasing the wind with that, he's not going to catch any. He's not going to collect any of the wind. In other words, what's happening is that it is totally worthless. And that's where that word extends to mean totally worthless. It's like shooting at stars. Not talking about looking at shooting stars, but shooting at stars. You could have a weapon that goes a long way, but it's not going to get you a star. You're not going to end up shooting a star. Chasing one's own shadow, which is futile. Uh, So we're warned against four things. We're to avoid these four things because they're unprofitable, first of all. Secondly, they are totally worthless. It does us no good whatsoever. And what are we to do with those two things? Uh, We're supposed to, those four things, we're supposed to avoid them. And that translates a Greek verb. It's in the middle voice, and when it's used that way in this context, it means to turn oneself around, to purposefully turn away from something or someone. If I were told by the use of this word to avoid you right now, here's what I would do. I would have to turn completely around and totally avoid you, not even look at you, look in your direction, go in your direction, That's a very strong word, and we're to avoid these four things that are here before us. So what I'd like to do is to uh, look at 2 Timothy 2.16. I've got it on the screen right now, and it tells us using that same word, avoid. It's a good introduction to what we have before us. Avoid irreverent babble. How many of you would say, I'm guilty of irreverent babble? Um, maybe not, maybe not irreverent babble in our minds. Godless chatter, it's also translated. Godless chatter, it is among those sins that we do with the tongue, and that's what's in view here. The, the text is saying, Christians, guard what you say. You don't want to get into these meaningless arguments. You want, don't want to get into things that, that, that don't, make, don't make any sense or don't make any difference in anybody's life. It says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. The more we talk, we're tra- it tells us in, in Proverbs that where, where words are many, transgression is unavoidable. The more we talk, the greater the chance the foot's going to end up in the mouth. The more chance there is that we're going to get in trouble with our mouth. So there are four what I call relationship busters 
in this verse. Four things to avoid because if we don't avoid them, then relationships are going to suffer. And the first of these, we're told to avoid foolish controversies. And the word foolish is from the Greek word moros. Can any of you guess what English word we get from moros? Uh, yeah, how about moron? Uh, and that's where we get from there. Does that communicate what God thinks of the controversies in view here? They're moronic when we do that. When we allow ourselves to be engaged in foolish controversies, arguing about things that don't really matter, when we do that, God says immediately, that's moronic. That is something that is totally idiotic for us to be doing. And that word controversies carries with it the basic sense of searching or investigating, but it came to be used for discussing or debating or arguing, if you will, especially talking about things that are controversial and contentious. In fact, that very word is used three times when Paul wrote to Timothy. He was writing to Titus here. He wrote to Timothy, and in writing to Timothy and Titus, his two protégés, he wanted them to learn things. He wanted them to be a certain kind of people. Then he wanted them to teach that to other people. And among these, in First Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy chapter one, verses three to six. And if you want to turn there, First uh, Timothy one three to six. Here's what he said to Timothy, much the same as what he said to Titus. And I hope all of us understand what God is saying to us today because this is his word. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. We'll see genealogies in Titus in just a moment, which promote speculations or controversies rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge, it's not to beat people in arguments. It's not to be contentious. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. First Timothy chapter six, verses three to five. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. Please keep that in mind because this is a big part of it. When we're arguing with people all the time, when we're trying to get our way, there's arrogance there, there's conceit. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving, and here's the word, for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What happens is people start quarreling about words. They start bickering with each other. They start fighting and wrangling about all of these kinds of things. It leads to competition. It leads to envy. It leads to all kinds of bad things. And all of it is centered in the fact that we're out here trying to win not win for truth's sake, but for our ego's sake. That's the point that Paul makes to Titus and Timothy. Be sure that you're on guard against that. You teach others, especially leaders, to be to not be that way, and all believers need to learn and profit from that. Second Timothy chapter two, verse twenty-three. Once again, have nothing to do with foolish 
ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. From the letters of John Newton, he wrote this, What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made? First relationship buster, avoid foolish controversies. The second one, avoid genealogies. Now, at first glance, we're going to say, well, what does that mean? I can't figure out my family tree. No, that that doesn't mean that at all. It's not the genealogies themselves. It's the many fanciful and allegorical interpretations that had fascinated the Jews for centuries when these words were written. It was something that gets very complicated, and I hope you'll stay with me through this to get an understanding of what's going on here. But with these genealogies, again, it's the arrogant person. It is the person who wants to argue about all of this and compare himself with other families. And you'll see as we go along, because there are some some quotations that bring it uh, down to our time for us a little bit. But the study of genealogies in the Bible, and it's certainly there, and in family histories, that can be very significant. It can be very proper. It is simply not proper to wrangle about them and to bicker about them and to, to engage in all kinds of arguments. Uh, from Vincent's word studies in the New Testament, gives us a little bit of an idea what this genealogy thing is about. He gives us several choices. He says, by some, the genealogies refer to the Gnostic aeons or series of emanations from the divine unity. Uh, the Gnostics at that particular time were a heresy. It was incipient at that time uh, in the area. It was it was growing. And uh, one of the things they believed was that there's God and put God at the center of a circle. There are concentric circles going around there or emanations or aeons. And you'll find the angels there. You'll even find Jesus, not in the middle, not divine. You'll find Jesus as one of those emanations. That was a heresy that they taught at that particular time. He says genealogies may be part of all of that that was going on. And then he goes on to say, uh, also, it's interpreted by or others to be the Old Testament genealogies as interpreted allegorically by Philo and others and made the basis of a psychological system, or it could be included in this as the Old Testament genealogies adorned with fables by others um, with genealogical registers comparing back and forth used to foster the religious and national pride of the Jews against the Gentiles. Uh, You may not have understood a whole lot of that. It's not easily understandable, but the point is simply this. They used the genealogies to fight with each other about it, and they used it in ways that were not proper. William Hendrickson describes them further. Novelty teachers and hair splitters. And if you like alliteration, you'll love these next two descriptions. He calls them peddlers of ponderous platitudes about the law of Moses, or specialists in spacious speculations about ancestors. He goes on to say, when a person rejects sound or healthy words, sickness results. This sickness reveals itself in a morbid craving for controversies and word battles. The man stricken with such a disease will make mountains out of molehills. Somewhat after the fashion illustrated in the Talmud, he will get all excited about questions like this one. Is it permissible on the Sabbath to throw away the pits of dates. And people would argue and argue and argue that kind of a point. Uh, 
At times, a mere name of some ancestor might start a controversy. The name might be changed into several anagrams, one anagram suggesting this, the other that. Or the name might cause one to recall a story which had been transmitted by oral tradition, but one story would contradict another story, and this too might lead to a heated argument. Let me ask you this question. Uh, Maybe you know some people like this. Somebody wrote this about pastors. He said, a lot of people go gunning for pastors. They would like to to show them up to be uninformed or ignorant. They love to think and study extensively about some obscure point and then catch someone else unprepared to intelligently discuss it and triumph over them. Do you understand what that's saying? There are those who, who love to major on something very minor, become an expert in it, so that someday, publicly, in a group or even privately, they can put the pastor down because the pastor doesn't understand that. It's been a long time since I've studied superlapsarianism. And if somebody wants to, to hit me with something, anybody familiar with superlapsarianism? And all that, what a relief. No. That was a quote I was reading. Nobody here would ever try to do that with one of the pastors. Um, but there are people that do that. It builds them up because they can tear somebody down who's supposed to be an authority. Third relationship buster. Avoid dissensions. The word here has to do with, again, strife, contentions, arguments. One translation calls it stupid arguments. Or to avoid stupid arguments. There's no substance to those arguments. There's no need to debate about those kinds of things. It becomes an ego trip once again. You may recall back in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, we were looking then at the qualifications of an elder or an overseer or a pastor. And as we were looking at those qualifications, one of them was not to be arrogant. And arrogant was a word that we tried to describe in great detail at that time. A church leader is not to be arrogant, but neither is anybody else who's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This leader of the church was not to be self-pleasing, self-willed, overbearing, arrogantly disregarding the interests of others in order to please himself. And I quoted at that time, as I do again today, from the Believer's Bible Commentary. If a man is headstrong, obstinately right with no possibility that those who differ might be. Do you catch that, what that's saying? Um, this, this whole idea that he's obstinately right, no possibility that if you disagree with me that you can be right. If he's unyielding and impatient of contradiction, then he's unsuited to be a spiritual leader. And I would add this, he is unsuited to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ with a testimony that amounts to anything. What does this kind of person sound like? I shared some of these the last time we were here, but what does he sound like? This is the person that you're in a discussion with him. Maybe it's a church leader. Maybe it's a board meeting. Maybe it's a little discussion that you're having in your small group, in a Bible study class, whatever it may be. This is the person that will say, no way. Or this is the person that will say, that will never happen. Or he'll say, over my dead body. Or whoever told you that? Or I'm right, you're wrong. Let's agree to disagree. But please don't forget you're wrong. Or this is America. You have a right to your wrong opinion. Fourth relationship buster. Avoid quarrels about the law. One way that that was very practical at that time because they got into a lot of arguments about the law, but it goes to say that any quarrel about anything is is, is not something we should be involved with. 
According to many commentators, this is a reference back to chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. And we do know that it refers back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, which we read earlier. But the whole idea that we're not to be quarreling about things of the Lord, even good things about the, the law, uh, the law of the Lord at that time that they were doing. False teachers in this book were not to be totally avoided, not to be totally ignored, because we're told in chapter 1, verse 9, they were to be rebuked. Chapter 1, verse 11, they were to be silenced. Chapter 1, verse 13, again, it says they were to be rebuked. In Jude, we're told that we have to contend for the faith that's once for all entrusted to us. What we're to avoid is the stupid, senseless, foolish, unprofitable, moronic arguments about unimportant matters. Stories told of the monks at a remote monastery deep in the woods, they followed a very rigid vow of silence. Can you imagine that? You're in a place where there are other monks there living with you, but you're not allowed to say anything. Their vow of silence could only be broken once a year on Christmas by one monk who could only speak one sentence. Did you get that picture? One Christmas, and I'm reading this, these names are not ones that I've made. Brother Thomas had his turn to speak, and he said, I love the delightful mashed potatoes we have every year with the Christmas roast. Then he sat down. Silence ensued for 365 days. The next Christmas, Brother Michael got his turn and said, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy, and I truly despise them. Once again, silence ensued for 365 days. The following Christmas, Brother Paul rose and said, I am fed up with this constant bickering. Wouldn't it be nice if it took two years for two sentences of controversy to be uttered by two people in close proximity to each other? But that's not the way it is, but that's the way that it should be. For the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should not be going after each other with words. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon describes some among his contemporaries. There was among learned men, and, and this is true, this is not a, a, a hypothesis, what, what, what would happen if this, hap- this happened. There were among learned men such a rage for Aristotle that his ethics were frequently read to the people instead of the gospel, and the teachers themselves were employed either in wrestling the words of Scripture to support the most monstrous opinions or in discussing the most trivial questions. Think of men gravely debating whether the angel Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary in the shape of a serpent, of a dove, of a man, or of a woman. Did he seem to be young or old? In what dress was he? That means how was he dressed, not not that he was wearing a dress. Was his linen clean or foul? Did he do his laundry or, or not? They're arguing about the angel Gabriel. Did he do his laundry or not? Did he appear in the morning, noon, or evening? What was the color of the virgin's hair? Etc. And he says, think of all this nonsense veiled in learned terms and obscure phrases. While human minds were engaging in weaving such cobwebs as these, no progress was made in real knowledge, and the gloom of the dark ages deepened into tenfold night. And then he tells us that we're in grave danger of doing the same thing, maybe not in exactly the same way, but we fight over unimportant subtleties. And he says what we do is we turn our cornfields into poppy gardens. 
We take what's important and we make it something that is not important. It doesn't do us any good to argue and wrangle and fuss and fume with others. It doesn't do anybody any good. In fact, it's unprofitable and it's worthless. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, tells us the same thing again. It says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. But then it goes on to say something that's good about what we should be doing. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, gentle, kind. That should be what people identify us as believers in Christ with. They should say, I have never met such nice people. I've never met people who go out of their way to do nice things for me. That should be the norm, not the exception. Mart DeHaan, some of you know him as a devotional writer, he said, in one of his devotions, he said this, I knew about their long-standing argument, but I had never heard them go at it like this before. There in the trees in front of my house, the crows and the blue jays were quarreling again. Their war of words and wings had escalated beyond anything I had ever seen. Then I noticed something I hadn't expected, a pair of huge brown wings making a retreat to a nearby branch. That wasn't a crow. So the commotion wasn't the usual spat between the crows and the blue jays. They had found a common enemy, an owl. Their dislike for each other was lost in a conflict of greater proportions, so they combined forces to meet the threat I've never seen this myself. I've never seen the crows and the blue jays going after each other, but I have seen the crows going after hawks. Have you? The crows go after hawks, and in this case, it's a cooper's hawk that the crows are after. But Dehan goes on to conclude with something that I think is very, very significant for us. He said, That scene impressed me as being one of nature's striking parallels to a spiritual reality that we as believers in Christ must learn. We have a common enemy, Satan, and he is reason enough to make us forget our differences. That's implied in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, but it's all over our passages that we've read today, where Paul urged us to put away our personal dislikes, our anger, and our self-centered interests. When we yield to these fleshly impulses, we give place to the devil, and he likes nothing better than to see us fighting with one another rather than against him. We're all in the same cause together. It should bind us together in unity. And we forget then about foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, meaning we don't quarrel about non-essentials. We don't go face-to-face and toe-to-toe with other believers or even people outside the family about issues that are unimportant. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Each one of us needs to take a good look at that today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the truth that is there that helps us to live more like Jesus. And I pray that that's exactly what we would do to a greater extent than we ever have before. May every encounter that people have with us be an encounter 
that leads them to be asking questions that will lead back to you. So we thank you for this, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.